Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study through the book of Acts, and we are going to finish up Acts chapter 16. And in the text that we're going to get into this morning, we're going to see Paul and Silas and Timothy, and now Luke is with them uh, on this journey. We're going to see them enter into a region called Macedonia, and they're going to go into a city called Philippi. And I want to tell you a little bit about uh, this environment, this place where they were going so that you have a little bit of context for what's going on in the stories that we're going to unpack this morning. So Philippi was a really important city. It was a Roman colony in the region of Macedonia. And so it was one city among many in a region called Macedonia. A lot like Pullman is one city among many in a region that we call the Palouse. And so you sort of get an idea for what Macedonia refers to, the, the greater region and Philippi is one town inside that greater region. Well, it was a, a Roman colony, and it was actually established originally by Augustus as uh, primarily a place to build homes so that his retired military vets would have a place to go and live. And so it was probably a pretty desirable place to live. Um, and because of that, you can sort of get an idea of what the vibe and uh, culture might have been like in a place like Philippi. So here you have all of these uh, retired military officials and military soldiers and veterans that live in a city and so they're going to heavily influence kind of the culture there, right? Like these are people that had spent their lives committed to defending and taking ground for Rome, had been completely indoctrinated and uh, devoted to all things Rome. And so there'd be a little bit of Roman patriotism in Philippi. And so that helps us understand a little bit about um, where these stories were taking place. Um, Philippi was also a city that was a really important city, but it wasn't the, um, it wasn't the capital or the uh, county seat, if you will, like we would use in our modern uh, terms. And yet Luke talks about it, and he says that they were the leading city in Macedonia, which he kind of rightly captured the attitude of the Philippians. They really thought like their city was more important than the capital city, which was Thessalonica, and we'll get to that later in the weeks to come, but they really thought that their city was even more important than that and more influential and more valuable. They had a lot of civic pride and a lot of uh, pride altogether in their city. Uh, not a lot unlike, again, uh, Whitman County, where our churches are located, where the county seat is actually out in Colfax, where the courthouse is housed, and yet, if you were to say, um, what's the leading city of the region, people for, for miles around would say Pullman. And certainly, everybody that lives in Pullman has this huge pride in their town and what their town is about and what it stands for. And I've just lived here a few years, and I can tell you for sure that people that live in Pullman are sold out to um, supporting their town. And so, even though they're not the, the county seat, if you will, they would talk about themselves as if they live in the leading city of the region. And that's a lot like the way the Philippians looked at their city. They thought their city was the leading city for a lot of different reasons. And so that's a little bit about what was going on with uh, Philippi and, and the environment uh, that these stories that we're going to look at would have taken place in. And so here we have, um, we've got Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke they come into this region in Macedonia, and they're going to come into this city in Philippi. And so I want to jump into the text with you this morning, and we're going to be in Acts 16. It's going to pick up in verse 11. And so if you've got your Bibles, 
grab your Bible. If not, it's going to be on screen so you can follow along. So let's read the text together. Acts 16, starting in verse 11, goes, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. Uh, from there we traveled to Philippi, uh, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. And on the Sabbath, we went outside the city to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. And she said, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So uh, a couple of things before we move on here, right? Uh, first of all, it's helpful to know it was common for Jews to build a synagogue outside of the walls of the city. It was largely dictated by being near water because of the ritual cleansings that were required. Um, in this text here, the language that Luke uses, he says that they went outside the city looking for a place of prayer. That can also be translated as a house of prayer, which could have been a synagogue. But the truth is, we don't really know for sure if there was a synagogue in Philippi at this time or not. What we do know is that somewhere along the way, they had got word that there was a place out by the river, outside the city, where they could be sure to find people worshiping God on the Sabbath. And so that's where they go. And there's all sorts of neat details in here about Lydia and uh, where she's from and, and about her personality and her vocation and all that stuff, but we really don't have time to unpack all of those. So those are fun things to dig into on your own. But what I do want to highlight is that Luke says that when she believed, she and her whole household um, were baptized. And for her, what that would have meant was any kids that were still living at home and any servants that uh, were in her home would have all been baptized. Now, scholars like to say um, or speculate that she was either widowed or even possibly divorced, but we don't really know for sure. So they end up going with Lydia and staying at her house, right? She persuades this uh, group of guys that are traveling to go and stay at her place. And this next chunk of scripture um, is going to kind of map out what happens next over the next several days, okay? And so for the sake of time, I'm just going to kind of sort of paraphrase this next chunk before we jump back into the text in Acts. So it goes like this. Uh, when they were actually on their way out uh, to look for this place of prayer by the river, it says that the guys encountered a slave girl. And this slave girl had been possessed by a demon, and as a result, she had this ability to tell fortunes. And because of that, she made a lot of money for her owners by telling people's fortunes. And so then we see the rest of the story that happens with Lydia, and they, they're invited to go back to Lydia's house. And then as they're staying at Lydia's house, in the days that followed, as they stayed in Philippi, what, set, what it says in the text, what Luke talks about, is, is he says that everywhere they went in the days to come, this slave girl kept following them around. She kept following around uh, Paul and Silas and 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 Timothy and Luke and and everywhere they went she was following them around and she kept yelling these crazy things out she kept yelling out these men are servants of the most high God and they've come to tell you the way of salvation and I really thought about doing that in a girl's voice um, these guys are servants of the most high God but 
my accents always change and it's super distracting. So I definitely won't do that, right? Uh, so she says this stuff, right? That they're servants of the Most High God and everywhere they went, day after day, she keeps repeating this and yelling it and, and, and she's following them around until it says that basically, like you get this picture that finally Paul just snaps. He just can't take it anymore. It's driving him crazy, right? And so he, he turns around to the girl and he, he tells the demon to come out of her at once in the name of Jesus Christ. He casts this demon out. And it says in the text that within the hour, that's exactly what happened. That this demon leaves her. Well, when her owners found out what happened, they found out that her ability to tell fortunes and, and thereby make money had been eliminated. These guys were furious, and so they grab Paul and Silas, and they, they drag them into the city center. And in the city center, they drag them before a, a magistrate, and it's actually two guys in a Roman colony that would have been like um, the judges in the, in the town square or council members that were real important guys. And these guys, the magistrates, would judge and uh, hear accusations and deliver punishment in the town square. And so these guys, the owners of the slave girl, drag Paul and Silas, into the town square before the magistrates and they start to make their accusations, right? Here's where it gets interesting because what they actually accuse them of is they say, these men are Jews and they're causing all of these problems in our city. They're disturbing the peace. But we know that's not really what their problem with Paul and Silas was. Really their problem with Paul and Silas is they had cast out this demon and removed their ability to profit from this young slave girl. But it's a lot harder to prove. It's a lot harder to ensure a guilty verdict that these men would be punished. What was easy to, to, to do was to accuse them and to call them out as Jews because the Romans greatly disliked the Jews. And it seemed like the closer you got to Rome, the more the Romans disliked the Jews. And so they, they highlight the fact right out of the gate that they're Jews which automatically stirred up a, a dislike for them. And then they go on to say, they're causing a, a disturbance of the peace. They're stirring up problems in our city, which was an accusation that they knew that the magistrates would take seriously. And it was an accusation that was actually against the law. It was a punishable crime. I mean, think about it. In, a, in an important city like Philippi, full of all these uh, retired Roman army vets, do you think they're going to want some rabble-rouser Jews going around the streets stirring up a fuss, causing problems? Heck no, not in their city. And so they, they make accusations about them that are going to be easy for the magistrates to hear and punish. And so they say they're Jews and they're causing this disturbance in our city. And the magistrates, it says, they go to Paul and Silas and they actually tear their clothes off of them. So they strip them naked in the town square humiliating as it is, can't even imagine being in those circumstances, humiliating as it is, that wasn't enough. They actually ordered them to be beaten with rods. And, and what they're talking about is being beaten with wooden rods that would have been something like these chunks of wood that I've got here. They, they would have actually had men who were assigned to um, deal out the punishment, and the punishment was to be beaten with these wooden rods. And, and when they beat someone, it was substantial. In fact, um, 
there is a, a famous Roman lawyer named Cicero, and Cicero had this to say about what a typical Roman beating would have been like. He described it this way when he was describing someone that was beaten. He said, he was beaten till finally the senior lictus sectus uh, took the butt end of his stick. And so here, the, the, just the, you know, like this, the, the butt end of the stick, like this. And it says that he began to strike the poor man violently across the eyes so that he fell helpless to the ground. And his face and eyes were streaming with blood. Even then, his assailants continued to rain blows on his prostrate body. And you see, it was after a beating like this that Paul and Silas were dragged into jail. And they actually ordered them to make sure they keep them safe in prison. And the jailer, he took that order really seriously because he took them not just to jail, but to the inner cell in the jail. And then he put their feet in stocks. And I want to get to the rest of the story in a minute, but first I want to highlight something interesting. Something I think that may cause you to rethink how you react or respond in certain situations. You see, here's something we got to remember as we're looking at this story. Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And it was illegal for Roman citizens to be beaten without a trial. And so here we have Paul and Silas who know that they're Roman citizens. They know that it's illegal what the magistrates are about to do to them, and yet they don't speak up. They don't say anything. And it, it makes you wonder, why didn't they cry out? Why didn't they scream out in front of everybody, halt, stop, you have to stop this beating. Like there's men coming at them with rods and why didn't they speak up and save themselves this pain, this humiliation? And the truth is we really don't know. We don't know if things just unfolded far too quickly or if they just weren't sure how it was going to play out in a new region that they'd never been in before. We don't know why they didn't speak up. But when I read this, and I think about who Paul is, it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder if Paul might not have known that if this little church in Philippi was going to take root, if this, if this fledgling group of young new believers in God, these, these God-fearers that had accepted Jesus as their Savior and the Messiah, if this new little church that was taking root in Philippi was going to be able to actually grow and flourish and, and hold through what was to come, what if he knew that many of those new believers were going to face similar persecution? What if he knew that a lot of them wouldn't be able to be protected by proclaiming their Roman citizenship because many of them weren't Roman citizens? So you see, Paul and Silas's suffering sets this example that, that the gospel is not just for Roman citizens, it's for all people. And their suffering also shows and models that what they believe in is worth even this, to be able to have the opportunity to share it with other men. So it makes me wonder, 
what would you do in a situation like this? What would you have done? How would you have responded? And even more, what do you do today when hard things happen? What do you do now when you're falsely accused or when you're um, lied to or cheated on or gossiped about or taken advantage of or looked over countless times for a promotion that you're totally qualified for? Like, what do you do? How do you respond? Are you quick to try and justify yourself, to try and uh, get even, to demand a trial, right? Are you quick to complain? Or, or like Paul, can you pause and recognize that there is a bigger story being told with your life? That there is a more important story being told with your life, one that is about you getting to share the gospel, the good news about Jesus as a Messiah and a Savior. And, and can you have the courage to live your life in a way where it's not about being right, it's not about getting even, it's not about fair, it's not about uh, an eye for an eye, it, it's about representing your God well. And I can tell you, if you can live this way, if you've got the, the guts and the courage and the wherewithal to, to respond in this way, in those circumstances, you are going to get the opportunity to share your faith. You are going to get the opportunity to share the gospel. So let's jump back into the rest of the story in Acts 16, picking it up now in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. And the jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and he was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights. He, he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And, and he, he brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. And immediately he and his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Well, the rest of the story goes on to talk about how the magistrates come around uh, in the morning and send people to, to tell Paul and Silas that they can be released in the morning. And, and Paul, at that point, he won't have it. He says, no, I'm a Roman citizen and I've been falsely beaten and falsely accused. And if they want to let me out in the morning, they can come right on up to this jail cell and look me in my little eyeballs and tell me they messed up, right? And so he was going to have them eat some humble pie. And so that the rest of the story goes on to kind of unpack that, but I want to finish by looking at something that both Lydia's account and the jailer's account share in common. In both cases, a whole household came to the faith. A whole household came to be baptized at the same time, and 
I think it's easy, especially in passages like these that a lot of people are familiar with, a lot of people who have uh, been a Christian for a while have read this story about Lydia and the jailer and the slave girl, and it's a common story that gets taught. And, and I think it's easy to read over a story like this and, and just sort of highlight over the fact that here are two different examples of a whole household coming to faith in Christ and being baptized and sort of just dismiss it, right? You're just sort of like, oh yeah, that happens. Or if we do look at it, we think, well, that doesn't ever really happen that way anymore. Or like that, we never hear of something like that happening. But the truth is, it does happen. It does happen. No, it doesn't happen that way all the time. But it does happen. In fact, just a few weeks ago, here in our own community, in our own church, we got a phone call from a family who is ready to commit their lives to Christ. Not just the, the mom, not just the dad, not just the kids, although all of them in the whole immediate family wanted to be baptized, but also the, there's a, a grown daughter in the family and her fiancé wanted to be baptized. And so this whole family, including a, a, a future son-in-law-to-be, seven of them total, were baptized. And, and how often is it that we get to see something as amazing as that? And, and here it's happening in our own community, in our own church. Now you see, in a Roman culture, it was normal that the head of the household was supposed to sort of dictate what the rest of the family did as far as choosing their religious beliefs. And, and it was even furthermore, it was expected that the, the head of the household, the man, the father, would guide his family to worship the Roman gods, right? But that's not what happened in this case. That's not what happened in Lydia's case. That's not what happened in the jailer's case. And it's not what happened in the case of the folks you saw in the video. In all of these cases, the, the gospel was presented and each person had to choose for themselves if they wanted to trust and follow Jesus. But there is something significant in all of these instances. There is something to the idea that the head of the household has influence over what their family believes. There's all sorts of statistics that have been done in the Christian world over the years, and, and all of them end up coming up with similar numbers. The truth is that when a mother uh, accepts the faith first, um, it, it, it's ridiculous. It's something like, if a mom comes to Christ first, and she begins to go to church, only like 17% of the time her family will join her in church. And yet if a, a dad, if a man, the head of the household, comes to faith in Christ first, it's ridiculous. It's insane. It's like 93 to 95% of the time his family will join him and follow in his faith. And, and there's all sorts of statistics. That it, it, right now, nearly half of all married women will worship alone without their husbands. Churches are made up high, a much higher percentage of women in churches. It's not, it's not nothing new to most of us that are part of the Christian church world, and, and we've been a part of churches. We understand that it's just normal, it seems like, for more women than men to attend church. It's normally somewhere in the 60 to 70 percent of a church family is made up of ladies. And it's even more so uh, out of proportion when it comes to people being involved in like Bible studies and small group 
uh, studies and, and you know one-on-one -on -one things where you're really digging in and getting in the word with some other people when it comes to the people that are doing those types of things it's almost 75 or 80 percent ladies just a small percentage of men actually get involved actively pursuing their faith at that level now I'm not sharing any of that to knock on any of our amazing ladies we have a church full of awesome godly women and this has nothing to do with saying anything negative about them w what this is about is a, a wake-up call for some of our guys the truth is there are some guys in our church and there are some guys in our community and there are some guys out there right now watching this and you probably know who you are that need a little kick in the rear you need to get off of the bench and get into the game. If you're ready for a different life, if you're ready for different outcomes, different results, then it's time to start doing things differently when it comes to putting your faith seriously. You want to have a better marriage. You want to have a, a, a better relationship with your kids. You want to have a better relationship with your boss and your employees. You want to have a, a better life in general. You want to change the future for your grandkids. Then it's time to take seriously the call to really follow Christ. To dig in and to learn what does it actually mean to be a Jesus follower. What does it actually mean to be a real Christian? a disciple, a, a doer of God's Word. Every year we start off in the fall with all of these people that are interested in being involved in a small group. They want to be in a home group. They want to learn how to grow with Jesus and, and actually walk out their faith. And that we have the same problem every year. We have way more people that want to be discipled than we have people who are willing to disciple them are willing to be trained and helped and, and taught how to disciple them. Every year we have the same troubles in children's ministry. We have all these awesome, amazing elementary kids that want to know about Jesus, that, that are there. They're, they come to us, and, and they're interested in the gospel, and they want to learn scripture, and they're like these little sponges that can memorize and live out and apply the things that they learn, and we don't have enough people to get in those rooms and lead them. And, and, and every year we have the same problems in in youth ministry with middle school and high school we have these awesome students in fifth sixth grade eighth grade tenth grade that are coming to us because they know that we're a place that's about jesus and that loves them and cares them and then they get here and they want people to mentor them to walk with them to do life with them to help them learn how to be a disciple in a way that makes sense at their age and we have the same problem all the time we don't have enough people to invest in and disciple these teens that are coming. And so for a lot of you out there, it is time. It's time to get off the bench and learn how to be a disciple and learn how to be a disciple maker. Fall is going to come. It is going to be insane. It's going to be busy. It's going to be awesome. It, it, it always is. And with fall comes new, comes new people that come to church. And with all of the things with the COVID and everything, there are going to be whole flocks of new people that are hungry for relationship and are hungry for Jesus. And we need you now to get off the bench and get equipped so that you are ready to be on the team making disciples with us. Guys, right now, just speaking real personally to the guys that are watching this. 
First of all, I want to say that to the guys in our church that are off the bench, that are in the game, that are making disciples, that are serving in ministries, and there are lots of you, I want to say thank you. We absolutely could not do this without you. And I just want you to know that on behalf of myself and our whole team, I am so proud of you. I think of the guys that come to my mind, and there's this huge list of these awesome, amazing guys that I get to link arms with and make disciples. And for you guys, I'm so grateful. And for uh, many of you other guys, it's time to get off the bench and get involved. And I want you to know, uh, right now, myself and another guy in our church are both kicking off some new men's groups here in the weeks to come. And one of the things that's frustrating for us, to be honest with you, and as a challenge, is that we both are guys that love investing in other guys. We love training up and encouraging and helping other men learn how to, to follow Jesus and actually walk out this discipleship stuff. And, and one of the things that's challenging is we, we sacrifice our time and our energy and we're willing to invest in these guys and then we can't find any guys that are actually interested in being discipled. We ask and people don't call back. We, we throw out invitations and we mention it to guys that we know should be in a group like that, that, that seem like they're ready for it and, they, and it, they just don't get back to you or it's not important to them. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to throw my uh, email and my cell phone up on the screen and we're just going to leave it up there for a little while. If you're a guy watching this this morning and you're ready to get off the bench, you're ready to grow as a, a Jesus follower. Maybe today is the day where you're like, I need to learn how to follow Jesus, period. Like, I need to be baptized. I need to, I need to commit my life to Christ. I want to know about it. Myself, along with our team, we want to come alongside you and help you learn how to follow Jesus. And, and some of you are like, I, okay, I've been at this for a long time, and I needed a kick in the butt. It's time for me to get ready to be in the game, right? Like, let me know. Shoot me a text. Tell me your story. Shoot me an email. Let us know where you want to be involved. How can we help you grow as a disciple and as a disciple maker? And maybe that's jumping in on one of these men's groups that we've got going. If that's something you're interested in, let us know when you call or text or uh, email in, all right? Um, last thing is this, is we do have some amazing men in our church. And today at noon... I want to make sure and remind you to come back and uh, jump back on Facebook or YouTube and watch this short video because you're going to get to meet some really amazing men and some really important men in the future of our church, our new elders here in Pullman. And so in that video, you'll not only get to see them and see what it looked like for them to be appointed as elders, you'll get to hear a little bit more about the process. So make sure and jump back and join us at noon. All right. So. I'm going to wrap it up and we're going to finish doing what we do every week when we get together at Real Life. We're going to have communion together. So right now, if you don't have your elements ready for communion, now is the chance to get them. Uh, you get your stuff, I'll get mine, and we're going to have communion together as a family here in just a minute. Well, every week we finish with communion together as a church family. And it's important for me to remind us that you don't have to be a member of Real Life Church in Pullman in order to take communion with us. 
Um, we have what we call an open table, and that means that anybody that wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is welcome to take communion with us. We look at you and we say, hey, we're family. And so let's share in this um, great event and memorial together as a family. And so this morning, we do that. We take communion together because we remember that Christ was willing to go through what he went through to go to the tomb, that he went through the cross, that uh, he was willing to endure that punishment and that shame and that pain because he knew his life was telling a bigger story. It was a story that involved resurrection and atonement for sin. It was a story that allows us to be grafted in as heirs to the throne with him. And so those are the things that we reflect on and remember as we take communion this morning. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. And he said, this is my body. As often as we do this, let's remember him. So let's eat the bread. In the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant, which is his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. So as often as we drink this, let's do this in remembrance of him. Well, join me as we pray. Father God, we love you. You are our God. You are the God and you're so good and we're so grateful for you and we're so grateful for the sacrifice and the punishment that Jesus endured to tell a much bigger story, one that we get invited to tell with you. Thanks for letting us be a part of that amazing story. And so we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody. It has been awesome to be with you this morning. Don't forget to tune back in at noon to watch that video on Facebook or YouTube, and we will see you uh, for Jesus time tomorrow morning at 8. Those of you that are tuning into that, the rest of you will see you next Sunday morning.